I don't know, I just want to express great appreciation this morning to our worship ministry. And um, I know you know how blessed you are to have these folks leading us every single week. Always look forward to this time of worship. Well, I've got some good news for you this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of Philippians that we're entitling, Life Doesn't Have to Be Perfect to Be Wonderful. And we're going to get out of the first two verses, finally. Um, let me tell you a couple of things about that. Uh, first of all, I did some calculating this past week, and I figured out that if we spend the same amount of time in the remaining verses of Philippians that we have spent in the first two, uh, this series is going to take us about six years. And I want to finish it. I want to finish it before your new pastor comes because I'm sure the search committee, Bo, hadn't signed up for six years of uh, work here. So we're going to try to try to breeze through that and try to pick up a little speed. But at the same time, please hear me say to you again that we have spent this much time in these first two verses because these are the foundations. These are the core values that underlie every single thing else, every, every, every other thing that Paul is going to be saying to us in the book of Philippians. So it's critically important. I will never, ever be able to experience the reality that life can be wonderful, even if it's not perfect, if I do not embrace the posture of a servant. If I, do not, if I do not live my life from the position of a saint, and if I do not live my life every single day drawing from the provisions of Christ, which are grace and peace. Now, last Sunday, our focus was on the grace of God. Today, as we wrap up this particular part of the study, we're going to be looking at the provision of God's peace. Now, as was the case with grace, if you were here last week, you might remember that there were two kinds of grace. There was saving grace, the kind we're most often familiar with and talk about the most. And then there is sustaining grace, that which enables us to be victorious in living our lives right here and right now. Well, as was the case with grace, the same is going to be true with peace because there are two kinds of peace that the Word of God speaks about. Let's look at them together quickly. First of all, there is what Scripture calls peace with God. Peace with God. This is what we read about in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul writes and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having peace with God refers to the experience of conversion. It refers to the salvation experience. You see, uh, until I got saved, until I became a Christian, God had a bill of judgment against me, and he had one against you. And every sin I have ever committed, past present or future, was held against me by God until the day of judgment, at which time I would have to pay the ultimate penalty for that sin. Well, when I became a Christian, 
when I invited Christ into my life, when I was born again by the Spirit of God, something significant happened. That judgment of God upon my life was lifted, and now I have peace with God. That means that things have been made right between me and God. Not because of anything I have done, but because of what Christ did on the cross, me accepting that, receiving that, inviting him to come in and forgive my sin and be Lord of my life. That's the kind of peace, the peace with God that we read about here in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. That is very different from the kind of peace that Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 1 verse 2 where he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There he's not talking about peace with God. He is talking about what the Bible calls the peace of God. The peace of God. So there is peace with God, but there is also the peace of God. Two very similar phrases, but the prepositions make all the difference. So when he talks about this second kind of peace, this what we call this peace of God, which he talks about here again in, in verses 1 and 2, is a very different kind of peace from what he's talking about in Philippians 1-2. Now we get some keener insight from Paul and from the book of Philippians about what he's talking about in chapter 1 verse 2 if we look over into chapter 4 and verse 7. So look at that verse with me, Philippians 4-7. Here Paul says, and the peace of God, here's the phrase, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul talks about this kind of peace, when he talks about the peace of God, he is talking about what we might call peace of mind, peace of mind or inner peace. That's what Paul is talking about here. Peace of mind, inner peace. This is a great need. It is a great need. There are a lot of people around today, and I'm talking about a lot of Christians, who have experienced peace with God. In other words, they know they're going to heaven, but their lives are a hell on earth because they're not experiencing the peace of God. And there's a reason for that. So in order to help us understand this reason, I want us to jump ahead to Philippians chapter 4. We read verse 7, but I want to look at the whole passage here, beginning with verse 6, reading through verse 9. This is a very critically important text for helping us understand the provision God makes available to us of His peace, what Paul calls the peace of God. So follow along with me as I read Philippians 4, 6 through 9, and then we'll look at some lessons here. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, 
whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, quickly, I want to pull out several lessons from this text which will help us understand how to appropriate this provision that the Word of God calls the peace of God. Paul begins, number one, by telling us that we've got a problem. There is a problem that keeps us from experiencing the peace of God, and that problem is something we call worry. Anybody ever worried about anything? All right. Probably everybody in here would say at some point in life, you've worried about something. Maybe you're worried about something today. Paul says, the enemy of my peace of mind, the enemy of your peace of mind is worry. Look again at verse 6, first part, Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, if you happen to be reading from the King James Version this morning, you'll see that it says, be careful for nothing. In that old Elizabethan language of the King James Version, the word careful meant to be full of care. It meant to be anxious. It meant to experience anxiety. It meant to worry. So when Paul says, be careful for nothing or do not be anxious about anything, what he says is, stop worrying. Don't worry. Now, let me let you in on a secret this morning, okay? You ready for it? Worry is a sin. Did you know that? Worry is a sin. Worry is a declaration that says, I do not believe God's power is powerful enough to deal with what's going on in my life, so I've just got to worry about it. Worry is a declaration that says God's wisdom is simply not wise enough to understand what I'm going through, so I'm just going to have to worry about it. Worry is a declaration that says God's love for me is not genuine enough to really care about the things that I'm struggling with, so I'm just going to have to worry about them. You see, worry is an attack on God. It is an attack on everything that His Word says that He is, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. Worry says, I don't believe any of that, practically speaking, so I've got to worry. And let me tell you, church, that is a terrible, horrible testimony for a child of God. John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher, once said, and I quote, I don't know what is worse, to worry, which is to doubt God's love and care, or to curse and swear. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. 
If you walked out these doors this morning and the person in front of you was talking and you overheard them and they were cursing and they were swearing and they were using God's name in a, in a profane and a vulgar way, you would probably think, gee, that person must not be saved. That person must not be a Christian. That person must not love Jesus. And you know what? I would agree with you that you were probably right. Well, John Wesley said that to worry to be consumed with anxiety and anxious care is just as much a poor reflection on my testimony for Jesus Christ as if I had used God's name in cursing and swearing. Now that is a strong statement, but I believe it is essentially true. It is essentially true. Worry is a sin, and more than anything else, it robs me of my peace of mind. It robs me of the peace of God. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, we might say of him that he had more to worry about than anybody who's ever lived, if he had chosen to worry about it. You remember where he was when he wrote this book, right? He was in a prison cell in Rome, cut off, from his freedom, cut off from his friends, cut off from his ministry, cut off from his comfort, waiting on the verdict of Caesar to see whether or not his head was going to be cut off. And yet this Paul, had, this Paul who had so much he could worry about, 17 times in this little four-chapter book that averages out to about once every six verses, uses the words joy, rejoice, or be glad, and he sums it all up when he gets to the end of the book in chapter 4, verse 4, by saying, rejoice in the Lord when? Always, and just in case you didn't get it the first time, Paul says, I'll say it again. Rejoice. How could he do that? How could he say that? Well, lesson number two. Paul understood that God had provided a prescription that enabled him and that enables us, you and me, to experience the peace of God, peace of mind, inner peace, even in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances in life. God has provided us with a prescription for that. Now, you know what a prescription is, right? Say you're sick, you're not feeling well, you go to the doctor, he examines you, he says, oh, you've got this illness or that disease or whatever it is. And so he sits down at his desk and he pulls out one of those little white pieces of paper and he writes down on it a prescription. He writes out exactly the medication that you need to deal with that specific illness or disease, right? We all understand that? Now, when you take that prescription to the pharmacist, the pharmacist cannot say, well, I see the doctor has prescribed this for you, but I think we'll just try something else. I got something a little cheaper, something here on the side I can give you. I've read about it. You know, I read about it in this textbook last week, saw, saw something in People magazine about it. All the stars are using it. Says it works great. So even though the doctor has prescribed, written down exactly what you need, we're going to go in a different direction. Listen, the pharmacist cannot do that. You understand? He or she is mandated by law to fill that prescription exactly as the doctor wrote it down. Listen, 
when I am suffering from the disease of anxiety and worry and stress, I do not get to decide as a child of God what medicine I'm going to take. I don't get to decide or discuss what is the best remedy. God has already given me the prescription. And let me just say, this applies to any area of life, not just stress and anxiety. And if there was a limb growing out of the stage right now, I'd just step right out on it. And that's what I'm going to do. We'll just pretend it's there. Can I say to you that this applies to every area of life? It applies to relationships. Teenagers, can I say, students, it applies to every relationship in your life. And church, can I say to you that where there is a church, where there is strife and there is discord and things have happened to cause division and people cannot get along with each other and there is a divide, whether it be generationally or because of something else, every single time it is because God's people have ignored His prescription of how things ought to be done. We have done exactly, precisely what we want to do, and I can promise you we get into trouble every single time. doesn't matter what your boyfriend says. It doesn't matter what your best friend says. It doesn't matter what the advice column in the newspaper has to say. It doesn't matter what the New York Times bestseller has to say. God has a prescription to deal with every situation, circumstance, relationship, problem, pressure, painful experience in life, and we do not get to choose what we're going to do. Our great physician, the Lord God Almighty, has written down exactly, precisely, what we need to do. And that is the case here when dealing with worry. So I want us to look at this prescription for a moment and make sure we understand what it is and what God is prescribing for us to do. There are three parts to this. The first part, the prescription that enables me to experience the, the peace of God, speaks to the need for right praying. Right praying. One of the keys to not worrying, one of the keys to having the peace of God, inner peace, peace of mind, is right praying. Now, please notice I'm not saying that the key is just praying. It is right praying. Let me tell you something. I am convinced, absolutely convinced, that you can pray and pray and pray and pray and still worry. You know how I know that? because I've done it, <laughs> and so have most of you. It's not praying that makes the difference. It is right praying, and we read what that right praying is here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, the last part where Paul writes, and he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, I want to break this down for you here and see if we can understand what right praying really is. Paul tells us right here in this verse. Let's look at some different words he uses here. First of all, the word prayer that he uses here, and everything by prayer, 
The word he uses here speaks to the idea of worship. He's talking about the kind of prayer that exalts God, the kind of prayer that praises God, the kind of prayer that spends time telling God how great he is, how awesome he is, all of the things that he can do, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-loving, that he's all-wise. It, 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 it worships God. Now, let me tell you why that is important. Here's why it's important. Write this down. When I exalt God, I diminish my problem. When I exalt God, I diminish my problem. You see, I don't care how big your problem is this morning. I don't care how big your struggle is. I don't care how huge your anxiety is. doesn't matter how big it is. It is smaller than your God. Hear me? I don't care how big it is. It is smaller than your God. You see, what we tend to do is look at our problem, look at that pressure, look at that painful situation, look at that circumstance or that person, and we say, oh, this is just too big for me. I can't handle it. It dwarfs me. I don't have the resources to deal with it. So I plunge into despair. I plunge into defeat. And all I can do is worry about it. That's exactly what the Israelites did, if you remember, when they went in to take the promised land. Remember the story? They took the spies and they sent them in and the spies came back and they said, whoa, there are giants in the land. They are huge They are so much bigger than we are. They dwarf us. In fact, they make us look like grasshoppers. There is no way we can do this. And so they became the cold water committee that says, there's no way this is going to happen because the problems, the obstacles are too big. Well, two of those spies, Joshua and Caleb, looked at that situation, saw the same thing, but they had a different perspective. They said, yes, there are giants in the land, and yes, they're bigger than we are. But they're not bigger than our God. So we're going to let God deal with the giants. We're going to do what he called us to do. We're going to go in and take the land. Church, right praying begins with worship. It begins with exalting God. It begins with a perspective that says, no matter how bad or big my problem is, it is not bigger than my God. He can handle it. Now, that's where you start, but it's not where you end. There's a second part to right praying, and that's found in the word translated here, supplication, or depending upon your translation, Petition. In everything by prayer and supplication or by prayer and petition, let your request be made known to God. Now, this idea or this word translated supplication or petition speaks to the idea of seriousness in prayer. Seriousness in prayer. In other words, supplication, petition means that I'm going to get serious with God. I'm going to pray with an intense burden. I'm going to pray with an intense concern so that when I petition God, it means that I pray, fill in the blank, specifically. I pray specifically or I pray with intentionality. Listen, so many of our prayers are so general. They are so detached that it's very easy to see how we can pray and not worry. 
God, bless everybody. Bless the missionaries. God, bless the preacher. Bless my church. God, lead me. Guide me. Help me. Watch over me, Lord. Thank you for everything, everywhere, all the time. I'm tired, Lord. Good night. Bye. Can I say something to you this morning? We ought to just save our breath if that's the best we can do. Right praying means you get serious with God. You spend some serious time with God. You speak with specificity and intentionality to God. If you're having a problem in your finances, talk to Him about your finances. Tell Him what's going on. Pray over that situation at work or whatever it is. If you need help in your marriage, would you spend some serious time with God talking about your marriage, praying for your spouse? asking for reconciliation or whatever it is that you need, if it's a relationship struggle, some other need that you have, if there's something causing you stress and anxiety, would you just lay it out there? Would you be specific? Would you tell God what you need? Not because He needs to hear it. He already knows. But because you need to do it. It shows you believe that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above and beyond all that you could ask or think, so you spend some serious time with Him in prayer. But there's a third ingredient in right praying, and this is really the hardest part. Do you see the word thanksgiving there? In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, the word thanksgiving speaks to the idea of expectancy expectancy. It means you really believe when you get down on your knees that when you get up off your knees, it's made a difference. And so Paul says here, after I've worshiped God, after I've proclaimed His greatness, after I've been intentional and serious about my need, then I need to thank God for answering that prayer, lifting that burden, dealing with that situation before I ever see Him do it. In other words, I go to God and I say, God, I, I may not know how or when you're going to work this out, but I trust you. I believe you love me. I believe you want the best for me. I believe you've promised to meet my needs, so I'm going to thank you in advance for taking care of this, even, even if your answer to my prayer doesn't line up with my answer to my prayer. Even if you decide to do something else, God, I'm going to thank you right now for whatever it is you're going to do. Now, you already know the word to fill in in the next blank. This is not easy. This is not easy. But can I remind you that the writer of Philippians says, without faith, it is impossible. To please God. This is hard because it, choir, it requires us to walk by faith, live by faith. It is not easy, but church, this is what God prescribes for us to do. And I do not have a right to say, 
I'm going to try to do it some other way. I must follow the prescription. Right praying is the starting point. But there's a second part of this prescription. Not only do I have to pray right, I have to think right. Paul talks about right thinking here. Right thinking. Church, one of the great keys to experiencing peace of mind, inner peace, the peace of God, one of those keys is right up here. It has to do with the way you think, what you think about, the things you choose to dwell on. Right thinking. This is all throughout Scripture. Paul says it here in Philippians 4, 8. Look at it. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That is why it matters what you watch on television. That is why it matters the kind of music you listen to. That is why it matters the kinds of people you hang out with. Because they're going to influence the way you think. They're going to influence what goes into your mind. And Paul makes it very clear. He lays a litany of things out here that we need to be focusing on. Things that are true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. And we stick our heads in a whole lot of stuff that ain't any of that. And we pollute our minds and we pervert our thinking. I put some verses down here for you. I don't have time to go into all of them, but I jotted them down. Let me encourage you to, to look at them. Romans 12, 2 reminds us that we are, re, we are transformed by what? The renewing of our minds. Philippians chapter 2, we'll look at that later. Paul talks about how important it is that we have the same mind in us that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. We think like he thinks. We process things like he processes them. And then 2 Corinthians 10.5, one of my favorite verses, and I throw this out to you students in particular, but I throw it out to every one of us just as well. Paul says we've got to learn to come to the place where we take every single thought captive. We grab that thought, and before it ever leads us down the wrong road, we bring it unto obedience to Christ. We run everything we think through the filter of God's Word as it leads us to obedience in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something, church. Whoever runs the mind runs the show. That's why God needs to get a hold of your mind. If you don't let him have control of your mind, you're in big, big trouble because your mind is to your spiritual life what your brain is to your physical life. Do you understand that? Your, your mind is to your spiritual life what your brain is to your physical life. Maybe you've known somebody, I have, who was in a terrible accident and had a traumatic brain injury. And because there was an injury to the brain, you may not be able to see it, it may not be visible, but because there was an injury to the brain, maybe that person can't walk. Maybe that person can't talk. Maybe that person needs help even to be able to breathe. You see, if, if, if your brain's not working right, a lot of other things are impacted. Well, listen to me. If your mind is not working right, 
If you're constantly focused on the bad stuff, the hard stuff, the stresses, the problems, the pressures, the painful experiences of life, and if your mind's focused on things that are perverted, if you're allowing people to speak into your life filth, if you're watching stuff and listening to stuff, and that stuff gets into your mind, I can promise you it's going to mess up your Christian walk. It's going to mess up everything God wants to do in your life because whoever, run, whoever controls the mind runs the show. So we've got to learn to think right. I want you to look at what Isaiah 26.3 says. You will keep in perfect peace. You'll get in on the peace of God. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are what? Fixed on you. We've got to get our minds right, church, or nothing in life will be right. So we've got to think right. Finally, the prescription for experiencing the peace of God includes right doing, right praying, right thinking, right doing. Verse 9, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. See that? If I want to get in on the peace of God, church, i got to pray right. And I've got to think right. But, oh, I've got to do right. I've got to do right. I can't let the pressures and the problems, the painful experiences of life, the hard circumstances and people in my life keep me from living the kind of life and doing the kinds of things that God has called me to do as a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, I don't get a pass. I don't get a buy. I'm not allowed to sit things out as far as my service for the kingdom is concerned just because stuff in my life is hard. God doesn't say, oh, you're going through a tough time right now. You don't have to serve me. Oh, you're going through a tough time right now. You don't have to be involved in ministry. Or you're going through a pretty rough time right now. You get to sit back and kick back and, and just have this pity party. No. The prescription for experiencing the peace of God includes getting out there and doing what God has called and commissioned me to do as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how tough things are anywhere else. Isn't that what Paul says? The things you have seen in me the things you have heard from me, do them. Practice these things. And here's the neat thing. If I do that, I not only get the peace of God, I get the God of peace. Do you see that? And the God of peace will be with you. Yes, I want the peace of God, but I want the God of peace. I want to know he's walking with me. I want to know He's filling me daily by His Spirit. I want to know that He's there to protect me and from temptation and encourage me along the way so that I can live my Christian life with joy and victory and assurance and be free from the debilitating disease of worry and anxiety. 
Let me tell you, this is the great secret. Jesus lets us in on in Matthew chapter 6. We don't have time to read that whole chapter right now. I want to encourage you when you get home. Read Matthew chapter 6, the last part, because he has an awful lot to say in there about worry. An awful lot to say about worry. In verse 25, he says, Don't worry about your life, the things of life, what you'll eat or drink or what you'll wear and could go on. Don't worry about how your needs in life are going to be met. Don't worry about your circumstances in life. Just don't worry about life. God's got it under control. Then in verse 34, he says, don't worry about tomorrow, about how God may or may not provide, about what may or may not happen. Don't worry about tomorrow. God's got that under control. Instead of worrying about those lesser things, Jesus says in verse 33, He said, there is a higher concern that ought to be occupying your life. There is a higher anxiety that you ought to be focused on. Do you see it in verse 33? I love the Good News translation because it begins with the word instead. See, this verse, Matthew 6, 33, that we spout and know so well is spoken in the context of worry and anxiety. So what Jesus says is instead of worrying about this stuff, Instead of worrying about health or finances or this person or that person, this relationship, what might happen tomorrow, how you're going to get by, instead of being concerned about those things, look at what he says, be concerned above everything else with the kingdom of God and with what he requires of you. He'll take care of all the other stuff. Are you with me? The question this morning is, what is your highest anxiety? What are you really concerned about the most? I want you to picture with me this morning a vast symphony hall. Just picture in your mind this huge symphony hall. My daughter Tolly and her choir from Blue Ridge High School went this past summer to New York City. They sang at Lincoln Center. I think that was the first time I'd ever been in one of those huge symphony halls. But I want you to picture one of those with me this morning. Somewhere in the farthest recesses of that building, I want you to imagine, there is a leaky faucet going drip, drip, drip. In that acoustically perfect building, that the sound of that leaky faucet is magnified and it is carried to the farthest reaches of the farthest row in the farthest balcony of that symphony hall where you can hear it going drip, drip, drip. Nagging, distracting, causing you all kinds of Negative feelings because you just hear it drip, drip, drip. But you let that symphony hall be filled with a thousand patrons of the arts. Let the orchestra take the stage. Let the brass peel out. Let the bass roll. And you'll no longer hear that nagging 
drip, drip, drip. You know why? It's been drowned out by a greater music. That's what Jesus is saying to us this morning. Some of us need a new symphony in our hearts. Some of us need a new focus with our lives. People who seek first the kingdom and the righteousness of God are seldom, if ever, distracted by the lesser nagging anxieties of life because they know God will take care of those things. Their preoccupation, their greatest concern, their highest anxiety is God's kingdom and doing what they know God has called them to do. You need the peace of God or you'll never experience the reality that life can be wonderful even if it's not perfect. But you can only get in on that if you follow the prescription. Right praying, right thinking, right doing. It'll give you that new symphony in your life. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its truth. Now, Lord, I pray as we come to this time of reflection and decision, that if there is anybody here this morning, Lord, who has been distracted by this disease of worry, anxiety, whether it's in their own personal life, whether it's in their relationship with someone, whether it has to do with health, finance, family, job, or just the routine of daily living. Father, help us today to understand you, the great physician, have prescribed what we need. Forgive us, Lord, when we've tried to fill life with something else, thinking it would take care of it. It never does. It always messes stuff up. So I pray we come to you today, Lord, and accept this from you, this provision. And if there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, they don't know the peace of God because they don't have peace with God. They stand today separated from you under judgment because of their sin. Oh God, I pray today would be the day they would come, take my hand and say, I want that judgment to be lifted. I want things to be right between me and God. Oh God, I pray that person would come this morning. As these altars are open, as we stand, Father, may your Holy Spirit have the freedom to do exactly what he needs to do in each of our hearts this morning is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Would you join me in standing? As we sing, if God's spoken to your heart, I'll be here if I can pray with you. Altar's open. Other staff will be here. You come.